Say hello, this is John Kane, and I welcome you to Let's Talk Native on this Tuesday, May 19th, 2020. While this program may not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do encourage and in some cases start conversations. We kind of break the rules here for Native Radio. We don't do prayers or buffalo speeches, and we don't do spirituality shows. We take a tough look at history, oppression, and survival. We talk about culture, the arts, politics, and identity. And we may step on a few toes along the way, but a real goal here is to is to bring people together by breaking down what separates us. We'll take on the false narratives and provide critical thinking to all that's heaped upon us, and we do it all right here live from the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. So let's talk native. But first, let me remind you that our audio streams live on our website, and our website is www.letstalknative.com. We stream live video of the show on Facebook Live across our own Facebook group pages, and, uh, and it's shared across a bunch of others. We take the audio and we put it up on SoundCloud after the program, and that puts it out as a podcast across all and any of your favorite podcast platforms. We take the video and we put it up on our YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. You can find videos of our shows, obviously, um, and you can also find our short-form videos uh, such as This is Canada and some of the other short-form videos that we've done on, on a variety of topics. So I encourage, you to, I encourage you to both subscribe to our podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I am John Kane. I am the show's host and producer, and I'm joined here in studio by Jake Proud, who is managing our audio and our video. Um, well, let's get into it. Well, first, let me, let me say, I'm going to talk about something that sounds very very complex it's a psychological expression called cognitive dissonance and i've talked about it before on the program um but i want to put it in into it it's into the perspective that draws me to this concept and that perspective is is different than the way the word this whole idea of cognitive dissonance is is the tension that is caused when people have conflicting beliefs beliefs that contradict each other or or their actions contradict their belief systems. And when this is studied, you know, through psychology, it's usually looked at uh, on the individual basis. You know, a person who does a job they hate or a person who s- continues to smoke even though they know it's bad for them or, you know, any any number of things. And and there's a variety of causes of, of for cognitive dissonance and I'll talk about some of them. But what I'm really interested in in explaining here is that it's a little different animal when you're talking about cognitive dissonance across an entire people. So when you created, when, when uh, through oppression or you know, colonization, um, this idea of imposing belief systems that cause the conflict or imposing behavior uh, against a, an established broad-based belief system, that becomes not just a... Um, an individual problem it becomes a plague across uh, you know essentially a mental plague across people's uh, you know across culture and so that's i, I want to be clear that when i talk about the cognitive dissonance of assimilation i'm talking about something that we as a people are experiencing and and of course we it, it, it gets down to the individual level but i think it's important that people understand that, that there it is a little bit of a different animal when you're talking about cognitive dissonance that an entire race or culture of people are experiencing before i get into it too much uh, you know i it's been our uh, our recent custom our new normal i hate to use the, uh, that expression but to uh, to run a few uh, covid 19 numbers um russia is uh, has 
essentially, for all intents and purposes, broken the 300,000 mark. They are now, they have 300,000 cases. They are second only to the United States. Well, they're second to New York State, too, because New York has like 360,000 cases. But as far as countries go, it is second only to the United States. Um, Brazil will be, uh, will pass Spain, you know, probably by tomorrow. Um, and we'll move into the third spot. And Brazil will also cross the 300,000 mark within a couple of days. I mean, so even looking at the countries that initially had this, this serious plague, people think about Italy and uh, Spain, um, France, and then the UK moving up the list. And they continue to, they've overtaken all the other European countries. And they, are, they have the highest death rate Set deaths set against cases. I mean, they're like fourteen percent. Fourteen percent of the confirmed cases they have um, have resulted in death. That's an incredible number. I mean, I mean, they've got they've got like thirty five thousand deaths and and like two hundred seventy thousand uh, cases. It's it's a it is a um, it's disproportionate to to what other countries are experiencing. Um, but but again, uh, on purely on the basis of the number of cases. Uh, it, it, Within the next couple of days, it'll be um, it'll it'll be the United States, of course, at number one, uh, and and they are over a million and a half cases. Uh, then you're going to have Russia. That's like I said, they they're essentially two hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and eighty cases right now. Uh, you know, you know, according to the to the uh, uh, the dashboards that I'm looking at. You know, so they're essentially at three hundred thousand right now. And like I said, in a couple of days, uh, Brazil will be there. And, and there's no, I, there, this isn't just like, uh, ooh, what a coincidence that a country with, a, with um, a leader like Brazil, who happens to be much like the, uh, the guy who's sitting in the White House in the United States. I don't think it's any, any coincidence that, that these two countries are, um, you know, lead, leading the pack in terms of the, the spread of this. And, and Brazil, Brazil right now, has the highest spread rate um, in, in uh, of any country in you know in the in the world and 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 keep in mind Brazil is is two hundred million people compared to the United States at three hundred million people and they're still I mean, they are still significantly lower than what the United States has so again when I hear Trump talking about the envy of the world I'm not so sure that the United States is the envy of the world now. For those of you who are keeping track of um, uh, the the targets that the Trump administration has put out there, when they originally said uh, that it would be, be it would be between a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand deaths in the United States, then took that number back to sixty thousand, and then changed it every time we got, we approached the new target. You know, they're, they're, I just heard them say recently that they expected uh, to cross over a hundred thousand in June. Let's be clear. They're going to be over a hundred thousand before June first. I mean, they're they're at ninety three thousand uh, now. They're adding over a thousand a day. I mean, before before we see June, the United States will have crossed over a hundred thousand uh, mark. And and the numbers are really in flux right now because there are uh, some places that have really loosened things up and they're they're starting to get uh, have an increase in in the number of cases. California is um, their numbers. 
were low uh, on a daily basis and now they're coming up there over 2000 cases today and um you know places like maryland i mean you know states you wouldn't necessarily think of um are posting some pretty big daily numbers both on the uh on the number of cases and the number of deaths and of course you know as we've talked about so much on the show navajo territory continues to lead um on a per capita basis their uh, their numbers are you know they're, they're i mean they're scary high for especially for their population um they're i think they're they have more cases than 11 of the united states and and for u.s territories including puerto rico it's it's a the numbers are, are not good all right so that's my uh, my covid uh update so um um let me talk about what again cognitive dissonance cognitive dissonance as i explained is the tension or the conflict that that um occurs um individually when a when somebody's belief systems uh either conflict either they have conflicting beliefs or their actions um are in conflict with their beliefs and and there's no better example of that when you look at the oppression that native people or or for, for that matter uh black people who were kidnapped from africa and put into slavery i mean when you have your entire lives disrupted when you have when you have people and, and this is you know well documented almost from the beginning when columbus uh arrives in uh in in the uh, caribbean you you have this this sense that that native people are being told no your culture's wrong everything you believed in everything that you've been teaching your children generation after generation after generation is wrong everything that you believed your life was about is a lie and we're going to tell you because it's all in this nice handy book that we carry around called the bible and we're going to tell you um what is truth because everything you've been living is wrong i mean look that's <laughs> that's immediate that's immediate imposed forced cognitive dissonance uh, across the culture and and of course that's just what what you're dictating to people then of course you're dictating actions and and the behavior of people as a result of it so you know it's easy to see that you are going to if you're living in under oppression the perhaps the psychological conflict that you're dealing with because of cognitive dissonance seems to pale by comparison to the conflict that you that you're physically enduring and i get that but today we're no longer being um you know massacred buried in mass graves many of those those horrendous things that that happened to our ancestors are not happening to us in the same way I mean, there's still there's still oppression, and there's still imposed cognitive dissonance, and that's a part of that. I want to talk about. I want to talk about the fact that that we that we've accepted some of what they've imposed upon us, even though it's not being forced upon us anymore. There are some some things that are forced uh, forced upon us, but I want to talk about some of the things that we that we seem to almost willingly accept. Um, th- this idea that uh, imposed U.S. citizenship. That's something that we don't have to accept, but there's a there's a large population, your percentage of native population that accept many of the things that have been imposed upon our ancestors: Christianity, enlistment in the armed forces. Of course, I've talked about this stuff, so it may seem like I'm kicking a, a dead horse on this thing. But um, 
our uh, where we fit jurisdictionally, um, governmentally, with states and the federal government. Are we uh, the whole idea of subjugation? This is something that I mean. Look, and we've even seen it play out here in the with this COVID nineteen stuff. Because when when the the folks the native territories in South Dakota said, "Look, we want to put up checkpoints and we want to check people who are coming onto our territories," we get into this major conflict where native people are being told by the state by the governor of, of South Dakota, "Oh, you can't do that. We aren't going to allow you to protect yourself from people crossing through your territories." I mean, it's I mean, it's it's a perfect example of how. Some of this unsettled relationship, the unsettled nature of jurisdiction, what controls we have in our own territory, um, how it, it, it rears its head in these situations. And there's a reason that this stuff is unsettled. And part of it's on us. Part of it is, is on us because we don't push for a settlement on this stuff. And I'll tell you the, another area that, that we contribute to some of this is this whole notion of federal recognition or federal acknowledgement. I mean, I, I refer to it as FedRec, W-R-E-C-K, as opposed to just R-E-C. And the reason is because it has this destructive nature to it. I mean, I believe when I talk about the, 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 the um, cognitive dissonance of, of, of assimilation, one of the things that I'm immediately drawn to is this notion of federal recognition. Because federal recognition, the definition of it by the federal government, is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. So how many of us accept that? Or do we only accept it to get, you know, do we, do we look at it as like, a, well, the ends justifies the means. So we're going to accept that definition uh, of our recognition because why? Because of federal funding? Be because, of, because of why? I mean, this is the question. And this is where it leaves, it, it leaves tension between the, the grassroots people, the, the people at the grassroots level, and governance, tribal governance. I mean, uh, you know, the, the native governing. And, and not just, I mean, even some of the traditional governance is, is, is at tension with, with this whole idea. I mean... You can hear leaders across the U.S. and Canada talk. Oftentimes, they'll say um, they'll talk about their courts. They'll talk about our courts, meaning the Canadian courts or the U.S. courts. You'll hear people talk about um, you know civil rights within you know the, the constitutions or provincial rights or states' rights, and and all of these things imply that we're accepting our position underneath the jurisdiction the, the jurisdictional levels of state or provincial or or canadian or us federal and and we do it and we do it at a level um and, and at a frequency that still gives the the greater impression to most people around us that that we've accepted our place the place that we were that we were that we're put into with um you know, with, with the with these colonial empires that came upon our lands, and we so we say it, but then when you break it down and you and you have these conversations, if you ask somebody, "Are you an American?" Uh, that's always a good question when you ask a native person, "Are you a Canadian?" I mean, because some people will say yes, and some people will say no, and they said, "Well," but if you ask it, you say, "Are you a Canadian?" 
are you or, or are you uh, Anishinaabe? Or are you a U.S. citizen or are you a Lakota? When when you ask it that way, all of a sudden people are, oh, wait a minute, I can't be both. They, they you know, or or if they don't even ask that question, if if they're thinking, well, I'm I'm Lakota, I'm Anishinaabe, I'm you know, I'm you know, they they will immediately um, draw to their native identity. But if you didn't put it as a as a as a multiple choice question if it was just yes or no oftentimes that answer will come through and you know and look we face this thing when we when we talk about travel documents and i've talked about this before uh passports can we travel can we travel internationally <laughs> well i dare say it's a pretty challenging uh you know thing to to attempt if you don't have a u.s or a canadian passport as a native as a native person and to get a u.s or a canadian passport we have to subject or submit ourselves to the citizenship of the of of either one of those countries there's no way you can get a passport from the united states if you're saying oh but i'm not a u.s citizen uh, no that, that that's not the way it works and it doesn't work that way in canada either so we end up in this situation but again let me get back to federal recognition because that definition is 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 i mean it is defined and, and this and this is the same with the indian act on the canadian side too it is defined as existing under the authority of the United States or under the authority of, of Canada. And in fact, this is where it gets even, even worse on the U.S. side. If you're a Native people trying to reacquire lost land, land that, you know, whether it was sold or, or ceded or stolen, defrauded out of you, if you're trying to reacquire lost land, the process the federal government has is called feed to trust. So it's going to be taken away out of um, fee title, and then it's going to be placed into a federal land trust So for the use and enjoyment of Native people. So it'll be held. The title of the land is still a U.S. title, and it's going to be held by the United States for the use and enjoyment of Native people. That's, that's the solution. Now, that's not the only solution, but it's, it's, the, it's the only broad-based solution. The Senecas have a different situation. They can actually reacquire land and, and take it back in, in its original title. But not everybody has that, uh, that, that circumstance, partially because not everybody has fought for it. And, but, to, but to use this fee-to-trust process, not only do you have to be federally recognized means that you have to be federally recognized as a tribe, band, or nation of, Indian, uh, nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. But you have to, you must have been under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934. This is a, a, a kind of a new thing. They, they call it the 1934 rule. See, 1934 is when they defined this idea of what an Indian is. And they said that that's, that's when, and, and Canada did the same thing. They, they, Back in this in this day, they they decided okay, an Indian is a native person who's under our jurisdiction. So even though they say that, and that's the definition, what they're saying in order to, to reacquire lost lands, that you must be able to prove that in 1934 that you were under U.S. jurisdiction, which is kind of crazy because you think well they, they passed a law in 19, you know ten years before that claiming that we we're all made U.S. citizens. Well, that seems like that should say that we're under the jurisdiction, unless they know that the law they passed was inaccurate and that it was wrong and that it was illegal. It was unenforceable. You can't just declare somebody a citizen against their will. So 
that would suggest that in 1934, when they were trying to redefine what a native person is, and they once again talked about this idea of jurisdiction, they were acknowledging that what they did in 1924 didn't work. But apparently, today, they're acknowledging that what they did in 1934 didn't work either because they want you, as a native entity, trying to assert not only your federal recognition, but your, uh, your desire to reacquire lost land, they want you to prove that in 1934 that you were under U.S. jurisdiction. Now, this is obviously is counterintuitive. Why would we want to prove that we are subjugated in 1934 or prove that we're subjugated today? Well, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because federal recognition has these perks that go along with it. Not only is there federal funding, but there's obviously this idea that, that you are now approved to reacquire lost land. You're also in, a, in the catbird seat if you want to do gaming. So there's all of these other things. So why can't we do these things with the, without having to subject ourselves to this cognitive dissonance? Well, see, therein lies the problem. And that's why I think it's important when people understand that while cognitive dissonance is, is really um, a, it's a, it's a theory to analyze the, the stresses that people are under when, when they, again, when they have these conflicts in their belief systems or in their behavior. But when it's imposed upon people, for only it's correctable. You you could stop being you could stop oppressing people. You could stop imposing these things that are not only inconsistent with with our culture, but they're in, inconsistent with with international norms. This whole idea of trying to impose this stuff upon a people is something that you know it violates you know international standards. I mean, uh, this idea of denationalizing, wiping away somebody's national character, is has actually been considered a war crime. They they actually defined it not only as denationalization, but that is one of the definitions of genocide. So the idea that genocide continues, although it isn't the genocide associated with with murder and uh, you know and and wiping out a population. Physically, it's the idea of wiping out a population by uh, through identity and through uh, it, it's a, it's a it's a whole different means of ethnic cleansing. You create the conditions that a people while they may not cease to exist, they will cease to exist as the people they once were. I mean, and and that's genocide. I mean, that's that's a war crime. But see, this is what we continue to experience. Now, we're not the only people to experience this, but, it, but it's at different levels. I mean, obviously, when you, when you think about you know, a black person or a family who's whisked out of Africa to be sold as, as, you know, into chattel slavery, that obviously creates this, uh, you know, the, the, all kinds of tensions, but not the least of which becomes this historical trauma that will, will continue to show itself you know, in the form of, of a cognitive dissonance for, for, for black people today. Black people are no longer enslaved in that way, but the tensions that exist because of that history and the racism that, that continues because of that history and, and because of white supremacy and colonization and the, and the role that the church has played in everything from, from slavery to genocide those things continue to plague people so you know so when we, when we look at where we stand today there are a lot of things that uh, that native people have clung to 
um, in terms of their identity that are completely inconsistent with um, uh, w- with their culture and with their hi- and and they certainly seem to defy you know just just openly defy history. I mean, uh, and, and the perfect example, and, and to me the the what should be the most obvious example of this is the enlistment rate of Native people in the military. I mean, I just saw a post earlier today, and it said something about the language that they they, dest- they attempted to destroy, the languages they attempted to destroy of Native people, would ultimately be the, the language that saved them. Well, look, I, I understand that people are proud of their, their service in the, in the U.S. military and Canadian military. And this idea of the code talkers, you know, regardless of what language they were using it's not just navajo there were there were many languages that were used for code talking but it's a bit of an embellishment to say that that the united states would have lost the war to japan if we didn't if we didn't sub, submit our uh, our language to the exploitation of the u.s military for the purposes of communication and and secret communication across radios i mean that, you know for those of you who need to be reminded the reason that our native people were used um for the military was because uh, everything that they said on the radio people were could could Translate even when they tried different codes, um, the Japanese in particular, and it's mostly the Japanese. I mean, I'm not saying code talking wasn't used in in Europe, but it was mostly the the code talkers' um, most prominent role was in uh, was in battling uh, Japan. But to, but to suggest that had they not used native languages, that that they wouldn't have look, would they have suffered more casualties? Yes, but the United States wasn't going to lose the war to to Japan if our people didn't if our if our language wasn't exploited but but again i look i look at that and and i realize what they did to us and and what they did to our people you know um they were murdering our people prior you know to to world war one our people were still being abused in ways that were unimaginable um, coming into into the 1940s, so the idea that that native people, in some sort of attempt to, I don't know, gain you know some respect or you know I don't know, lift themselves out of the the, the you know the, the racial oppression that they were feeling by by. <laughs> And they didn't offer it. That's, that's the other thing. I mean, this idea of using native language was something that our people were really coerced into doing. Now, I'm not saying that it should take away from any of the bravery or anything else that, that enlisted people you know, had to muster up to fight for the United States. But the whole idea that, that, that we would ignore the fact that they were, that wounded knee took place and the massacre wounded knee took place in 1890 and we're we're only 50 years down the road from that from that period of time when our people are signing up to fight are signing up signing up to fight for the united states and and again i've always got to say this because the first thing people say is wow we have to we had to defend our land and that was what we did the united states didn't get attacked pearl harbor hawaii didn't get attacked Pearl Harbor, the place where the United States had had was was illegally occupying the lands of the Hawaiian people, the Kanaka Maoli. That's what got attacked. 
So from us, from a native standpoint, this is, again, where that cognitive dissonance goes. We've, we've got to either change the narrative. We've got to pretend that that truth isn't in there. So we, we've got to change the, the truth so it can satisfy our actions, you know, uh, so we can be more comfortable with history. The problem is changing, changing your belief in what happened doesn't change what happened. All right, we're at the bottom of the hour. So we're, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back. But I want to I want to get into this a little bit more. I, I realize this is tough stuff, but uh, we're going to go through some, some more of it. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll be back in a minute. All right, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Hey, let me give a shout out to my sponsors. I want to thank Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses. I want to thank Eric White and ERW Enterprises. I want to thank the uh, the folks at Grand River Enterprises and Native Wholesale Supply and anybody else out, out there. And there are others who, from time to time, do what they can. They they drop a check in the mail or they uh, make some sort of contribution. And, and of course, I also want to thank those of you who contribute by sharing the show, listening to the show, um, helping me fulfill what we're what this whole mission is about. The whole mission here is to have a conversation that continues after the show. So if you listen to anything here, and you know, even if you don't take something that I said, but but if if there's a subject that we talk about that you feel compelled to continue a conversation with, then 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 my goal is fulfilled because that's what I want to do. I want to start conversations. I want to promote conversations. I want to pro- prolong conversations because I think there's too many of these things that that we experience that we don't um, look. We 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 try to put it out of our mind, which goes back to causing some of that cognitive dissonance. So I want to thank all of you who share the programs, listen to the podcast, share the podcast, share the videos, um, and. And look, those of you who have your own conversation, maybe you do your own podcasts afterwards. But but if I if you pick up a subject from this show and carry that conversation forward, then then I thank you for that because that's what we're trying to do here. So I want to um, again, I want to express my gratitude to you, to you folks as well. Um, hey, before I get back into it, there was a train derailment out here um, yesterday, I think, um, in East Aurora, which is pretty local to where it's Western New York here area. Now. Uh, they're they're not talking a whole lot about what was being hauled by this train, and they're saying most of the contamination is being caused by the diesel fuel that's leaking out of the engine that derailed. All I can say is it's a good thing the American economy is in the tank because that that train this is the what we are concerned about when we talk about bomb trains and when we talk about what happened to Lac Magantac up in, in Quebec this town that was wiped off the face of the earth by a train derailment hauling bomb trains filled with Balkan crude of course because the 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 oil industry has you know hit the crapper as well there hasn't been the 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 rush to to send all of this crude oil out of the Dakotas um to the east here for for export which is also seems kind of crazy but um and and that's what we had you know look we were having trains come right through Seneca territory here 100 cars long of these you know, 111 tanker cars hauling Balkan crude 
over to Albany, then down along the Hudson uh, through New Jersey, uh, dropping some off in New, in New Jersey, and some of it going right down to Philadelphia. And, you know, and even this, this um, train, which I think was coming from Pittsburgh um, to, to Buffalo, there's a reason they, they come up here because the, the east-west um, rail corridor is, you know, is essentially better. It ain't great, obviously, if, if trains are derailing, but this is, um, now, there hasn't been a whole lot of derailments in the in New York State, but there you go. I mean, and these derailments are really more of a function of the condition of the tracks and the safety of traveling by rail. I mean, it's not like um, b- bomb trains are more likely to derail. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. They, they are more likely to have a major disaster associated with them if they derail which is the concern that we have. And, and obviously, uh, living here in Seneca Territory, knowing that these bomb trains cut through Seneca Territory, and Senecas have nothing to say about it. They, they, have, they have no say. It's like the, um, the easement that they gave for, uh, for the CSX tracks that go through here. They can ship anything. And, and obviously, what took place in East Aurora, we're, we're going to talk about this more as... as uh, I get more information on it. It only happened yesterday. Actually, I only heard about it today. Um, it says some of the trains were carrying propane. Oh, propane? Okay, yeah. Well, so th- they haven't said, <clears throat> although they did evacuate. They, they they evacuated people out of 40 homes, I think. But um, so we're, as more information, I get more information on this. We'll talk about it more on the, on the next show. But um Look, this is, the, this is the kind of thing that, that I've talked about in the past. I haven't done a bomb train show in a long time, um, but this is what concerned me. And, you know, carrying any um, fossil fuel, so whether it's, you know, uh, you know li- liquefied natural gas, whether it's propane, what, whatever it is, you know, Bakken crude, this stuff is dangerous. And, and the condition of the, um, the rail system in the United States is pretty deplorable. And so when people say, well, it's safer to ship it by rail than by truck, well, it might be, but the problem is when it goes bad on a rail, on a rail line, it goes real bad. And the lack of contact is a perfect example of that. So, uh, you know, and it's, it's the same thing we say about pipelines. The problem is when a pipeline bursts, it's, it isn't even immediately known, you know, because these things aren't monitored properly. The amount of oil that comes out of a, a ruptured pipeline is incredible. So the, the disaster is much bigger. Is it safer on a per gallon or per barrel basis? Perhaps if, in the overall, when you look at those statistics. But when these incidences occur, I mean, when a tanker, you know, Valdez ruptures, it's a big deal. Do they rupture very often? No. When When a... Uh, an oil well in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, blows up. It's a major disaster. Does it happen often? No, but when it does happen, it's a big deal. So, uh, again, local derailment here in western New York, uh, East Aurora. Um, look, this is Seneca territory, so it's it's worth noting. All right, let me get back a little bit uh, to talk about, um, again, cognitive dissonance because. You know, part of it has to do you know, when when you go through they they talk about what are the causes and and, and the number one cause of um, of cognitive dissonance is forced compliance, uh, forced compliance or forced behavior, and and of course that that has to do with oppression that has to do with everything that we as Native people and for every the Black people have experienced. 
So there's that. The other thing is decision making. So when you have to make really tough decisions, and and those decisions are born, are, you know, are presented with really bad choices that you have to make the best of a bad choice, kind of like voting for Biden over Trump. I mean, whatever. I mean, whatever. Whatever that. When, when somebody, when you're presented with with bad options, no matter what you choose you're always going to be haunted by the by the ill effects of that uh, of that you know uh, you know that that decision that you had to make i mean uh voting for the you know for, for the least worst you know and oftentimes you you know that there's a challenge with either decision that you make right you know that there there's a um an adversity that is possible because of the, the bad choice you make so what happens is you start trying to justify the bad choice. You, you know, you you double down on the bad choice, even though you know you had to co- make a, a huge compromise to make that choice. So, and and that's where where you'll see you you know you see people. I mean, look, even making the decision to enlist or or to or to follow you know a religious faith, you, you start saying, well, there's there's an upside to it, and you start trying to justify all of the reasons for doing it, even though historically. These are the kinds of things that we should run away from. But, you know, so when we, when we feel like we're forced into making these choices, look, if you had to go through residential school and you were, this religion, it was, was being imposed upon you and you were being beaten, look, you didn't have a whole lot of choices there. So when you, when you adopt some of that belief system as a survival mechanism is one thing. But when that threat is no longer gone, and you seem to ignore what made you choose to follow these beliefs and and ignore also the contradiction that these beliefs these 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 wonderful religious beliefs that that came at the end of a rod or centuries before came at the end of a sword and then and you continue them and you know if you don't cast them off when the threat is gone now you've you've created again more potential you know um uh cognitive dissonance now the other thing is is there's a there's a tendency that if you went through an extreme effort or punishment or whatever if you if you went through a real hardship to get to a place you also feel invested in that place that you got to. So you know they talk about effort. Effort is one of those causes that um or it's a cause of cogn- cognitive if you worked really really hard for something you value that something even more, regardless of whether the value of that thing that you valued is is good for you or not. So you know, if you, if you work all your life to buy a Ferrari, for instance, you're going to value that different if you you know won the lottery and got and, and bought a Ferrari. And even if neither neither purchase made any sense, you're going to think, well, that yeah, but this is what I work for. So the effort that you put in for something becomes your justification so effort is another one and and we experience that look again somebody going through these the life-threatening enlistment into the military to fight in world war ii or or korea or vietnam or to go through that 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 superhuman effort regardless of the fact that you were taking other people's lives who were every bit as justified um in their belief system as you are but your effort 
and your commitment and your bravery and sacrifice ends up being why you justify it. See, and, and this is where they talk about, you know, again, in, in psychiatry, that the effort you put into something creates some of that cognitive dissonance because it seems to negate any of the the ill, whatever the choice was that you made, if it came with a great effort or sacrifice, then you justify it. Now, the other thing that, that uh, um, causes major conflict, or, you know, cognitive dissonance is when new information is gathered. When, when people become aware of something they weren't aware of before you know so when we talk about global warming for instance but from a native standpoint here's a perfect example of it hawaii so when hawaii gets illegally occupied and then taken over by the united states there were several generations that just kind of put their head down and accepted the narrative that came from the united states that the united states had legally annexed the uh, the kingdom of Hawaii, the, the territories of the kingdom of Hawaii. But when the information came out, and in the 1970s, when 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 people who were already like challenging, coming out of civil rights era and the sovereignty movement that Native people in, on the continent were going through, but people in Hawaii started becoming more aware, and what they became aware of was what they were had been told for you know for almost for you know for almost 100 years was bs there was no annexation there was no annexation treaty even though there's statues built with william mckinley and a, with a rolled up treaty in his hand no it didn't happen that's a statue it's like a cartoon that's not history that's not real there was no annexation treaty so when the new information comes in and now, as 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 the Gunakamali, the, the Native Hawaiian people, they have to all of a sudden they got to dig in and they find out. Wait a minute, our people signed they they signed petitions, they, the Kuwait petitions. All of a sudden, all of that truth about what a what a theft had what theft had taken place with the United States became aware, and all of a sudden, more and more Hawaiian people started. Uh, you know, start talking about this thing, and they start saying, "Wait, a minute, we have a legal right to reassert the Hawaiian kingdom." See, now here's the challenge, though. I see what the Hawaiian, what what these Hawaiian people are doing, and thinking, "Great, they, you know, they're they're taking this new this information, this newfound information." And I say new, but it's it's been since the '70s. But it's taken a while for this thing to 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 you know be broadcast not only amongst Hawaiian people but throughout the rest of the world. So with this new information and you realize that the lie that had been told since, you know, you know, since the turn of the, uh, of the 20th century, all of a sudden you realize that this 70, 80 year lie is something that has been exposed and now you have to behave. Otherwise, what do you do? You've, you've got to wallow in this cognitive dissonance. You've got to just say, well, there's nothing we can do about it now. Which is, you know, obviously, you know, kind of ignoring the situation. But I look at native people on you know in the U.S. and Canada on the continent, I should say, and how many of them are prepared to look at the true history? It, it was interesting again watching what was playing out in South Dakota over the uh, you know, several of these native peoples through their and not just the grassroots, although I'm sure I had grassroots support. Said no, we're going to protect our territories and we're going to we're going to ask people before they come on the territory, where have you been? Why are you coming? You know, are, do you have a fever? Do you have any symptoms? 
put the idea of putting him a check one and to have the this uh um christy gnome this uh the governor of south dakota saying no you can't do that you can't stop our people meaning white people <laughs> on uh on state highways coming under your territory what the hell we can't and all of a sudden the, you know th- that tension that that be- because we haven't re- you know ever addressed who has the say over our lands or not and part of the reason we haven't addressed it because we've lived in this in this fog for you know for hundreds of years we've allowed the state to believe that they had the power we've actually in many ways yielded that power to the state so now when we assert it we have to make sure that that that, that not only are we right and, and and I believe we are but we also have to be able to to document it and we and we've got to be able to have the right kind of pushback yeah we've got things like the UN declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples and and we have these the treaties but you know but somebody else wrote all that crap i mean there's not a treaty that a native person ever signed that we wrote and and again native people contributed in you know in the un declaration of the rights of indigenous people but you know what in order to get that thing passed they had to water it down the word sovereignty never the only word sovereignty that that plays out in, in the un declaration of the rights of indigenous people is the sovereignty of the nation states that they're saying has to, has to give us certain rights there, there's a real effort to avoid this notion that that we can assert ourselves as nation states that we can assert ourselves as real nations. I mean, so we can use the word nation, but they don't use it too much in the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples because it, they don't want to create, you know, they didn't want to violate the sovereignty of, of the colonial powers. They didn't care about our sovereignty. So, so again, there, there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of that, you know. So this is part of, so when, when I look at, you know, where we sit as we try to assert, you know, just whether we're talking about the, the Ganaka Maoli and, and, and those who are advocating for the, um, you know, the, the resurgence of the Hawaiian kingdom or whether any of us are trying to assert, whether it's traditional governance or whether whatever we're trying to do in terms of assert, asserting our distinction, our identity and our right to a free and independent existence. And I don't mean free as, you know, you know, by by some U.S. definition, I mean free and independent to make our own decisions. Now, none of us live in a vacuum, so I mean, I, I will be be clear here. When I say independent, I don't I don't mean that we're going to isolate ourselves. I'm not saying we can we can live in isolation. And, and you know, the the metaphor when people say the world's a smaller place, it's not a smaller place. But the reality is, we are in more. We are more in contact with each other than and and than in any other time in human history. So, we understand that we that as native people who are committed to our environment, we have to acknowledge that white people are part of that environment. The colonial powers around us are, are part of that environment. Now, I'm not saying we need to yield to it, but we have to understand that that we have to have some way to to to, to interact with that environment. And, and of course, there's interacting with non-native people, and then there's inter- interacting with non-native governance. And, you know, so when we talk about things like allies, and I've talked about this a couple of shows ago, when we talk about allies, we have to understand that 
the state and the federal government are not our allies. Look, and they can talk about things like trust responsibility and all that other stuff. They are, in every instance, the opposition. And now, whether you want to call them the enemy, you know, uh, you know, some sort of fatal enemy, I don't know. Um, but they are, they are the opposition. Every conflict that we as Native people have has the state and the federal government on the other side. Now, every once in a while, the state will side with us against, or the federal government will side with us against the state. But that's not the full weight of the federal government. It's usually the Interior Department, which is like Smokey the Bear and, and National Forests. And they'll make some, some weak determination that, that the U.S. Justice Department can either take or not take. I mean, every time the, the Interior Department steps up as an advocate for Native people, it isn't the, the slam dunk that people think it's going to be. And, and it's not like they do that very often anyway. But, but to be clear, the federal government... Even if, there's, even if there appears to be people within the federal government that are our friends, that government is not our friend. The state government's not our friend. And look, if we run people in that system, if we, if we see a, uh, a, a, a Deb Haaland or a Sharice David or you know, Tom Cole or some native person sits, you know, gets into one of these, these national you know, offices, that doesn't change anything for us. So, I mean, this is, again, this is part of that cognitive dissonance. When we believe that we're going to have a friend in the governor's mansion or that we believe we're going to have a friend in Congress or in the Senate or in the White House, that is, that's a belief that is inconsistent with, our, with, our, with the knowledge of our history. So what we, what we end up doing is we end up trying to hold two belief systems that are in conflict with each other. That by definition, is cognitive dissonance. Because there's none... Look, Deb Haaland, Sharice David, or, or the, the native guy running for president uh, on an independent ticket, he doesn't... These people don't acknowledge that we, are, that we have a free and independent existence or the right to a free and independent uh, existence. At best, they'll say, oh, that's the conversation we need to have. <laughs> that's the conversation we're trying to have, but nobody wants to have it. And so whether you're a congresswoman or a congressman or whether you're a senator or, you know, or you're in the Interior Department, look, one of the greatest you know, speeches I ever heard was when Kevin Gover was giving the, the apology speech. And it was like at the anniversary, some I can't remember what year it was, 125th anniversary or something, of the Interior Department. And he, and he gave this whole speech, and he said, be clear, I'm not speaking for the federal government. Wait a minute. You're the, you're the assistant secretary. You're the head of the Bureau of Industry. You're the, you're the, the, the Interior Department um, secretary. And he says, but be clear, I'm not speaking for the federal government. Well, okay, then why are you, you giving this speech then? But he gave this whole speech apologizing for all, of the, all the wrongs that the, uh, that the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Interior Department had done. And, then, and it was called the never again speech. The funny thing is, it, wasn't, it didn't turn out that way. There was plenty, yes, we'll do it again to you. We're going to do it again to you. And, and, and we see time and time again, federal policy is geared towards keeping our people down. It never adequately addresses, and, and one of the examples is this, this whole idea of imposing the 1934 rule that doesn't allow Native people to reacquire lost lands. 
unless they can not only accept being under U.S. jurisdiction today, but has to prove that they were under U.S. jurisdiction 90 years ago. I mean, it's it's that level, you know, uh, I'm sorry, 90 years, 1934. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be yeah, yeah, 1934. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is the rule, right? So, I mean, we have to understand that our opposition is the federal government. It is state government. It is state agencies. It is federal agencies. And so if we gain some you know, advantage or we get some, something out of one of these things, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden that, that they are our allies. Now, I'm not saying we don't have allies that, that, you know, that won't step up for us or with us, not for us, but with us. But see, this gets to one, another issue that I've talked about so often. We become so obsessed with state and federal government that we don't even feel equipped to interact with them directly. So what do we do? We hire lawyers and lobbyists and consultants, all of these, these professional services that are going to speak for us. And you know what they do? One of the first things that any of these, is they, they, they introduce our us even to the federal government say, well, this is the such and such. He is a member of a federally recognized tribe. Like, why the hell would I ever want some white man to introduce me as somebody who is a member of a subjugated entity, a federally recognized tribe? And yet they all do it. You, you'll never find one of these lawyers, lobbyists, or consultants who don't, at their core, believe that we are subjugated. Even if they're out there advocating for us to gain something, they know that and that's, not their, that's not their belief system. And yet we rely on those people. Relying on white people to advocate for us in, in all cases whatsoever is another form of cognitive dissonance. We, we know that it's wrong. We know that it's, we are, should be the experts who should be the experts on being native? Well, native people should. But we have this disconnect. And so this cognitive dissonance, dissonance, this force imposed cognitive dissonance that is imposed across an entire culture, an entire people, becomes so entrenched in us that we have a difficult time breaking away from it. And this is the tension. So look... So what does all this mean? So what, what if you suffer from cognitive dissonance? Well, I'll tell you what happens. The highest suicide rate. The highest su um, substance abuse rates. The low, lowest life expectancy. The, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. Boys and girls, too. The, I mean, all of the, the things that, that, that... The poverty that exists in our territory are all a direct result of us never being able to break through the, the issues related to this cognitive dissonance that we're experiencing. You know, they, they refer to this as a stress builder. This isn't just stress. Cognitive dissonance is, is a tension that is a, a conflict that is so embedded and so much a part of our lives today and our history. And, you know, you know from the first time a white man stepped on our shores till, till today, we are still experiencing it. And this becomes part of 
our our existence. It's not the identity we choose. Because even when we we make these bad decisions, it was always the lesser of two evils. It was always the, making a the, the best of two bad choices or three bad choices or five bad choices. They would not be the choices we make if we could get to, if we could choose the choices. So when you hear this expression, cognitive dissonance, I don't want people to be afraid of it. I, you look, it sounds like very, you know, at, you know, it, it, it sounds like a word salad, as they call it, right? You throw these words out there, but this one has meaning. And it has a, a special meaning when it comes to Native people. I got to thank, you know, Shaw Bay, my friend, who wants me to write a chapter in her book about this subject. And in fact, I want to write an entire book about the subject. Um... You know, part of my exercise today is is even having that conversation because this is something that we need to address. We need to address that we've had generations that have contributed, con- they, they actually hand this thing down. We inherit the cognitive dissonance and then have more of it heaped upon us with each generation, each passing generation. So again, don't be afraid of the word. Um, let's talk about it. Let's talk about cognitive dissonance. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. We'll see you back here on uh, on Saturday. But uh, don't forget to catch uh, tune us in on Thursday for our show on WBAI. That's Thursday at four o'clock on WBAI and streaming live here on Facebook. We'll see you then. Yawai.